Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. My guest today is a spectacular combination of eternally young at heart and more than 40 years business savvy in financial services, in particular as an early professional in the world of hedge funds. He's seen and done a lot. As a brief career snapshot, he spent his first 20 years as an accountant at a firm specializing in the brokerage business, including operations, trading, and business strategy. He advanced to partner and was named to the firm's national management committee. He then founded his own business strategy consulting group for a select group of hedge funds and New York Stock Exchange specialist firms before going on to join Ernst & Young in 1989. He started the firm's audit and business advisory services targeting the entrepreneurial financial services sector and served as a senior partner and head of EY's global hedge fund practice. By 2006, at the time of his departure, this practice had 45% global market share, over 1,100 staff and 100 partners. Then came time to co-found his own hedge fund, where he was COO before going to Morgan Stanley as a managing director, helping clients navigate the complexities of the hedge fund asset class. Which brings us to the latest decade, founding his own firm and bringing to bear all he's learned to help financial services entrepreneurs as they create hedge funds, private equity, and venture funds. Not surprising, he's been a frequent lecturer and speaker at conferences around the world and writer, author of numerous publications on securities, investment partnerships, and issues relating to the financial services and the hedge fund industry. I am honored to welcome my friend, an unassuming legend, and the founder of Press Management LLC, Joel Press. Joel, what a pleasure. Thank you for joining me on Say It Skillfully. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for that introduction. I only wish my parents were alive to hear it. Well, I do too, but up from above, I know they're smiling uh, upon you, Joel, and, uh, and I'm sure they're, they're thrilled to be uh, with us in spirit. Joel, you uh, are, you know, so many things I admire about you, but very top on my list um, is how real you are. And that's often not easy for people to be, especially at work. Um, so how you become who you are and do what you do may be a story that many people find uh, unexpected. And so I really appreciate your willingness to share it and help listeners learn of and from your journey in life so far. Thank you. Hope, hopefully people will find the benefit to, to listening to this, uh, to, to, to the story. Thank you. Well, you let it rip. I'm, um, I've heard parts of it, but I know I'm going to learn a lot in the process too. I guess, you know, to start off with childhood, um, I uh, was always in trouble at school because I, um, had a, I was tall for my age. My mother uh, was 5'10", my father was 5'11". A woman 5'10 in that era was virtually unseen. And she worked when she could because we needed money. My father, we were in the seltzer business, so old-fashioned seltzer bottles. Uh, I'm fifth-generation seltzer man. I was on the truck when I was 12. I was driving a truck before I had a license at 15. But growing up, 
uh, school was really difficult for me. I didn't know uh, I was learning disabled. Um, I only found that out when my oldest son was diagnosed with um, attention deficit disorder. I wound up having attention deficit. I was hyper disorder. Um, so for example, in the sixth grade, I'm sorry, in the fifth grade, they wanted to leave me back. And in that era, when they left you back, you went into, you'll forgive the expression today, it's totally inappropriate, but this is what it was called back then. It was called the retarded class. And that class included kids who were truly physically and mentally disabled and those who didn't learn in the normal way. Uh, and clearly I was one of those, but my mother was an intimidating woman and uh, wouldn't let me get um, uh, left back. And by luck, uh, and life has lots of great turns in it, if you let it, if you look back and reflect on it, uh, I got a teacher named Mr. Cohn, who for some reason liked me, asked my mother if he could work with me. And he took me from third grade reading in the sixth grade to seventh grade reading and got me to read the New York Times every day. And he pushed my buttons. We literally had a couple of fist fights, which again, in today's world would sound inappropriate. But in that era, it was not normal, but for someone like me, it was something that happened. Um, I also got left back in Hebrew school. Nobody gets left back in Hebrew school. I got left back twice and thrown out twice um, because I couldn't learn like everybody else. Um, my test scores, I tell people, my SAT scores, for example, my combined was less than what most people get on one score. Uh, my standardized testing was somewhere between 10% or 20% of the population. Uh, and I was literally voted least likely to succeed in uh, high school uh, as a senior um, for good reason. I was on the basketball team. Uh, I uh, Grades were just not my thing. And uh, school was hard to learn. But I was also working on the truck with my father five days a week after school, every Saturday. And my father worked six days a week. He had eighth grade education. My mother graduated high school, could have gone to college, but had to work. Classical depression parents who worked their whole lives. And uh, both were very smart, um, had good street smarts. And I think they gave me a lot of that. And the only reason I went to college is my father and I would fight a lot at the seltzer shop. And I love my parents and I love my father, but the fighting wasn't great. <clears throat> And I um, wanted to go to college only, uh, and I wanted to be a doctor. I had this bizarre dream that I could be a doctor. I, I never took any of the prerequisite courses. They didn't have prerequisites. I applied to one college, LIU Brooklyn. And after the first year, they threw me out. I had a perfect uh, one index for 34 credits. Um, and then I decided I wanted to try accounting because the girl I was dating was ultimately became my first wife. <clears throat> excuse me, she um, suggested try accounting maybe, uh, and I wasn't good with numbers, she goes, you might find that easier. And again, I didn't want to be in the seltzer business because, and I was working every day with my father up at four, go to school uh, in Brooklyn and go back to the seltzer shop and then study till one, two o'clock in the morning, that same routine. Um, and I got lucky at college after, um, I went, uh, I, I had a, when I wanted to apply back to school, the guidance counselor called me up and went to my parents in and basically told us, 
it's a waste of time for me to go to college. I'm not college material. And my father said, look, he's paying for it. He's taken out the loans. He wants to try it. You can always go to the Seltzer business, give him one more shot. And um, he didn't want to. And then my mother basically told him, you have no downside to having him do this. So why don't you just let him do this? And let's see what happens. We'll see if you're wrong. He said yes, ultimately, because my parents literally beat him up over it. Um, Not physically, but they verbally made sure I got in. And um, I went to summer school. The short story there is I needed to maintain the B average. And um, I wound up getting uh, a B in accounting and the the rest of my grades, I did make the B average. but I did protest the grade because I thought I deserved higher. And the head of the accounting department, a fellow named Phil Wallace, who's now 101, who I've seen every four months since I graduated college. And the only mistake Molly said about my career, my career spans over 50 years. And um, I'm out of college over 50 years. And for, the, for those 50 plus years, including while he's in the Jewish home for the aged in Riverdale, I visit him now every three to four months, COVID adjusted, uh, because he kept me from being thrown out the third time by not allowing me to protest and saying, you're in college, you don't need to protest. If you win this and you would, the rest of the teacher will hate you, you'll get thrown out of school. So I swallowed my pride. Um, Short story is I graduated number two in accounting, a fellow named Donald Jones, uh, got a 4.0. I had a 3.95 because of that B the professor gave me that I thought I deserved my A. And I joined Oppenheimer Paul Dixon. Um, and then I got very lucky. I met my mentor in uh, this accounting firm named Mr. Ader, who um, took a liking to me and taught me to be the businessman I am today. So Molly, that just gives a, a brief background of where I came from, how I got into accounting. Wow, wow. So Joel, this early, you know, we think about kids doing paper routes and I think maybe that's a 5 a.m., but 4 a.m. Um, on the truck. Um, so was that an option like work ethic? Is that something that just, is it through your blood when you see your, your parents doing what they're doing? I, I've never complained about working hours um, uh, because my father basically worked 15 hours a day um, he never complained about work. The biggest thing he complained about is when it snowed, how, how would the trucks go out and how would we get to go service the trucks? So for me, work was never, work. I, I tell people I've never worked in my career. I love what I do. Um, I never wanted to leave public accounting. I enjoyed, and maybe because of my ADHD, I I grew from an, what would be called a classical auditor tax person into a business advisor. And I juggle lots of different problems for lots of different clients. That helps my brain. Um, my first reaction is my best reaction. If I try to overthink things, it's not good for me. So work and work ethic. Um, and you know, I basically tell people today, and I have the same motto, uh, if I don't return your phone call, email, within 24 hours, I'm probably dead. And I clear my box every day. I have no open emails before I go to sleep. And um, 
I returned every phone call. And in the old days before, you know, emails and so forth, before voicemail, I could be getting over 200 calls a day and I returned every call. I didn't miss. So I, I, I basically worked in public accounting, you know, four days a week. I didn't get home before nine or 10 o'clock. That was not unusual for not just me, but people in the, in the profession at that time, especially in our, the firm that I was at. Um, and um, when I needed to leave that firm for lots of complicated reasons, um, and I joined Ernst & Young, and my distinction at Ernst & Young was I was the first direct admit partner of the merge firm. They merged on October 1st. It was Arthur Young and Ernst and & Winnie and Joel Press. And they brought me in to run uh, financial service and build out the entrepreneurial broker dealers, New York Stock Exchange, and American Stock Exchange specialist business. Uh, I had told them I thought hedge funds would be, become a major player in the industry. Um, and my first hedge fund was actually 1968 when I graduated, when I joined Oppenheimer Paul Dixon. So hedge funds were part of the financial service industry, bigger than people realized in the 80s. Uh, for example, there were 300 startups in 1980 that we, my firm did and I was uh, working as part of. Um, and when I came to Ernst & Young, I wanted to be able to build an entrepreneurial service in a large, what was called the big, and before the merger it was called the big eight. Now it's the big four, but people didn't think that big firms could provide entrepreneurial service. I was, I didn't believe that was so, my background from my first firm. And uh, I really believed that we could create an environment uh, of great skill, great knowledge. You know, who thinks an audit, you know, an audit's an audit, tax returns a tax return. So how do you distinguish your business? Well, I learned from my first accounting firm and my mentor um, and another mentor named Walter Mintz, best hedge fund manager I ever met. And I met every famous hedge fund manager up until today world and none was better than Mr. Mintz about, you know, what people want, what people need, and knowledge makes a difference. And if you're always learning, you're never bored, uh, which is why I don't think I've ever worked. Uh, what I work with are my clients, they're unique, and it's expanded now to a, a, a large, you know, the things I cover are uh, unique from uh, business advice to tax advice to estate advice. Uh, I work with uh, expert witness uh, testimony. Um, I work on business divorces, personal divorces. I do a lot of work in the prenuptial area for young couples. I also am considered the expert in the Wall Street area for gay prenuptials because of the unique uh, uh, issues that gay couples face. So the things I cover are special and uh, exciting. And the people I work with are just very interesting. I just see how you've really been able to make the ADHD and your need for different, uh, the stimulation work for you. And it does come across like you're not working, like you love it. Um, and, and, you know, as you start out in business and you, you have this groundedness, you know, this sense of right, you know, and you think about corporations and, you know, you're younger coming up, was it, was it challenging? Did you find bureaucracy? I'm just, I mean, it just seems like you flowed. Have you always just flowed through it or there must've been some hiccups? I got lucky, I guess, in the sense that I was never considered very political because uh, I said what I thought and I didn't say what I should have said. Uh, and that existed at my first accounting firm. 
And the reason I made manage, I made partner very young at 28, 29. And they put me on the management committee, which I was too stupid to understand to shut me up. Because once I went on the management committee, I no longer could be vocal outside of the management committee. And I was considered a rebel rouser. I was always working to make more money that the uh, seniority system that my first accounting firm had had to change. Had a massive fight with the managing partner, Arthur Dixon, where he almost he almost hit me and basically didn't speak to me for six months. And I told him, you'll forgive this language. He was an idiot for the way he was treating the younger partners. And if he did this, he'll have no younger partners and no one's going to pay his pension and we'll all be gone. Six months later, he came into me uh, and asked me what I thought compensation should look like and how we should change it and how it would work, uh, which is when they put me on the management committee. And um, it, we made changes to the firm uh, that were unique and special and kept some very talented people at that firm. Uh, and all of us had lots of opportunities to go to Wall Street. Um, I never wanted to really work in the Wall Street area. I felt I had a lot of independence uh, being in public accounting, uh, no one told me what to do, and I um, could do what I felt was right. And I basically lived my career. Uh, there are certain people I wouldn't work with, the people who are quite famous, but not necessarily nice. Um, I've been involved with over 60 frauds in my career. Uh, I have stories for stories, including Madoff and others. Um, and I've been very fortunate that. Um, I believe you do the right thing and uh, things will be right for you. And you, you never look back on a decision or consequences. You say what's right, you trust your gut, you never violate your own principles. If you live by those credos, uh, you always can look in the mirror. Uh, is it easy all the time? No. Um, I remember I made, uh, there was a massive mistake with a client that could have cost them $35 million in taxes, 1982. $35 million in taxes, 1982, was a boatload of money. Um, I caught the mistake, fixed the mistake on my own. I came up with a unique solution, walked in to tell the client with the managing partner of the firm that I screwed up, but we fixed it, but it, here's what, how the fix would work. Um, and I was basically in tears because it was a huge embarrassment, even though the problem was solved. Um, and the senior partner, a fellow named uh, Mr. Jacobson, says to me, to the managing point, he says, you leave. Joel Press will never make a mistake again with us. We'll keep him. Um, and it just shows when you do what you have to do and you don't lie, um, things work out. I didn't expect that result. I thought for sure they would throw me off the account, but they didn't. And I maintained that relationship and I became their investment banker and sold that business to Goldman Sachs. So, um, you know, doing the right thing to me is always paramount and integrity is everything. Those are, those are great words. And a lot of people are nodding their head. And is that just how you were wired that you knew you had to do it and stand for what, was it hard to find that courage or just like it's just in your blood? I, I can't answer it that way. I, I, I never was smart enough to know to deviate from the truth. I didn't color the truth. I, 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 that's why I was politically stupid. I was fortunate that 
people who were more powerful than I am in not only at Ernst, at Abraham Pell Dixon, my first accounting firm for 21 years, but at Ernst & Young, the four chairmen of, that I lived through their careers really embraced what I was doing, how I was building the business. Now, I was very fortunate that I had incredibly smart people working with me, and we were incredibly successful. So that helped them like me because we were financially very successful. Um, and right now, for example, at Ernst & Young, the private equity hedge fund business that I built is the largest section of the financial service industry of all of Ernst & Young uh, on a global basis. Uh, that shows the breadth of the industry that when I joined Ernst & Young in October of 89, there wasn't one hedge fund in the firm and maybe two private equity uh, clients that were very small. Um, so believing in yourself, knowing you're going to make mistakes, listening to what other people have to say. And as I said, I, you never look back on a decision. You always try to make better decisions, but you can't change a decision or kick yourself for a, a decision you've made. You, you, you took the best facts you had, you made that decision. The moment you make that decision, facts could change. That makes that decision not the decision to go forward with, and you move on to a new decision. But you never get stuck at the crossroads and you can't make a decision. If you keep making decisions and trying to make better decisions, you'll do really well. But recognize not everyone works out and not everything is, you know, not every day is a good day. Um, but overall, it works out pretty well. Wise, wise, wise words. Joel, when you're back uh, as a young person struggling in school, your mom, God bless her, advocating for you not to be held back. Um, did you have doubts about yourself, you know, as, uh, as a young person? What, what, do you, can you recall those feelings? The, the doubts I had is I knew I was different than the other kids because the other kids did better in school. And, I, and my, even my teachers would make fun of me or criticize me. Like I never passed a spelling test. Like my greatest business weakness is I cannot write. Everyone laughs at my writing. I still, with spell check on my phone, I can't tell you how often I get no replacement. When I have to write something that's quite serious, my wife has to write it because she's an excellent writer. Um, and when you're ADHD, even at this age, I will occasionally do something that my children or my wife or people that know me go, really? Could you, and it makes you, when they're saying really, I mean, are you that stupid? They don't mean it that way, but it's so bizarre. And one of the things I, I, I realized is, um, you know, the reason ADHD people, and part of my, the flaws of my personality is I'm always trying to prove I'm not stupid. Now that doesn't sound good, but the reality is when you grow up being told you're stupid, but you're too stupid to be believed that you're stupid, which is good, you're always fighting that image. And you could tell when people, when you've done something that other people look at you like, really? It's not fun, but it is part of the DNA. So about 40 years ago, I started counseling parents with children with ADHD on how um, they should treat their children because a normal brain cannot understand an ADHD brain. 
an ADH brain could say, I could say to you, Molly, I'm going to talk about uh, Oppenheimer and Pell Dixon. And in the next breath, I talk about Ernst and Young. I'm not being dishonest to you or trying to make you look foolish. My brain just went from Oppenheimer and Pell Dixon to Ernst and Young and doesn't remember Oppenheimer and Pell Dixon, what I said. It's not done to be malicious, but to a normal brain, that act could look like a defiance or someone trying to you know, make someone else look foolish or like, why would you lie to me? And the ADH brain is not lying, but to the person receiving it, it seems like a lie and understandable. I tell people whatever they hear about me on a professional level, the good, the bad, and the ugly, it's all true from someone's perspective. And, um, you know, um, it's embarrassing still that I can't write. Like I worked with someone today and I need to write um, a two paragraph introduction for someone. And I said, why don't you write it? It'll come out better and then I could tweak it. I'm a decent editor, but I can't create. So those are limitations I know I have. And um, when I give speeches, I'll mispronounce words. And every once in a while, it's really bad. And I could see the audience eyes. And I'll say, okay, I'll make fun of myself. Well, I said, okay, how did I, what did I say wrong here? Because I know I did something. And then someone will yell out from the audience. And I've done this with over 2,000 people in the audience. And it's a good laugh, but it is embarrassing. And there are certain words that even today, I know I pronounce incorrectly and I can't fix it. So. Everybody has limitations if you understand your limitations. Um, and you don't give up on people. Uh, I could tell the daughter of my, my I have a, a, my daughter who's um, took six years to get through college, uh, slight learning disabled, um, and uh, wanted to go back to school uh, when she was 28 years old for a master's degree in uh, occupational therapy. The, the uh, I said, no, I said, absolutely not. You hate school. It took six years. You were disrespectful. You didn't care what you spent. But the daddy kicked in. I said, if you can get in, if you can get uh, past your GMAX and, and, and get through it, I'll pay. But other than that, you're out. Short story is she has a doctorate degree in um, occupational therapy, specializing in the disabled, working with disabled children. And she now leads that program in Eagle County in Colorado. Um, so you don't give up on people. You just have to figure out what's the, what's the key that everybody has and how do you find that key and how do you find positive way that most people will find negative. Yeah, it's, it's uh, just hearing you. It just it makes so much sense to me how you can you know, you're very easy to be around. You're very disarming. And um, to be able to speak, you know, so forthrightly about the things that are still hard or embarrassing, you know, most people, it's just really hard to do, you know, Joel. And so I think that that, you know, you really stand well, for that. Probably it didn't come easy. I can tell you that, um, you know, my first 25 years in the business world, uh, it was I would hide all those things. I could not talk about those things. And people didn't talk about those things. It's a different, you know, people didn't talk about cancer in the, in the 60s and the 70s. They wouldn't mention the word cancer because they thought they could get it. Today's a much better society where we're more open about people's abilities, inabilities, and we recognize that, you know, we all need help in different ways. 
Um, and I've learned that if you expose your own weaknesses with others, it helps them recognize their own weaknesses. And no one can tell someone how to deal with something. You can only give them guidance, but they have to figure out what's best for them. But with parents of, this, of, of learning disabled children, they've got to recognize criticism of saying you're wrong, you can't do it that way. That will not change that brain and that ADHD child. Uh, drugs, certain drugs help, obviously. Um, but again, within a context, but if you, if you ask an ADH child, instead of criticizing, go, how did you come to do that? And have them think through their actions instead of criticizing their actions. That allows them to learn from the action without someone telling them they're wrong. Telling someone they're wrong is not always the right thing to do. And um, you have to understand how that gets interpreted and have the long has long-term impacts on people. That's why the flaws of my personality are clearly from being criticized as a child that I was stupid. Yeah, this is, um, this is so great that you can help parents, you know, because you just love, love, love your kids, but sometimes you're doing things that don't serve them. And it's so fortunate that you have a chance to help some of these parents. Joel, for the for the young people who have ADHD, some thoughts, um, suggestions you have for them. You have a, a shining light inside. Don't be embarrassed by your actions and trust your judgments. But sometimes you have to step back if you can and take a breath before you take an action. ADHD means you're so hyper, you can't, you don't wait to think. Um, and that's, it's hard. And as I said, my first reactions are my best reactions, but I've learned with age, and this will come for all young people, age helps you grow, takes the edges off. Um, but trust your judgments. Don't let people put you down but recognize that the way you may do something is different than others will do it. It doesn't mean they're right and you're wrong or vice versa, but there are multiple ways to accomplish different things, but believe in yourself and never doubt yourself. Ah, oh, it's amazing. That's amazing for, for all young people, for sure. Um, Joel, as you have, uh, you know, talk about family life, you know, you're on this, great trajectory at work. And, um, you know, just, I think lots of times you, you maybe hear women talk about balancing work and life, but I, I'd love to hear your, your experiences. So I'm blessed in life. Um, I have married a second time and I, I tell people I married a childhood sweetheart, um, who I know since I'm seven and she's the mother of my first two children. She's an amazing woman. Um, and I still have a relationship with her. I still work, deal with her. My current wife works with her. She has some health issues that we're helping her with. Um, but I tell people divorce is the greatest tragedy of life and the best thing that ever happened to me. And, um, 
when I left my first accounting firm, a complicated story, I was basically financially broke. I was separating from my wife partly to save the house so that they couldn't take my house. Gave me the courage, our marriage was not great. Gave me the courage to get divorced. Um, and then I met my wife when I joined Ernst & Young and uh, the best thing that ever happened to me, uh, we, uh, she came with a, uh, her child of two, who's my child, he took my name. Uh, he's, our children don't call themselves stepchildren. Um, so my, as I said, my daughter's an occupational therapist. She um, is unique and special. I have my oldest son from my first marriage. He's a jeweler and um, has a dynamic personality and loves what he does. And he's married with, with my only grandchild. And my youngest uh, uh, is, you know, fabulous. He's, he's a tech consultant, uh, loves his job, works his buns off. Uh, and the family, we ski a lot together. So we're with, we're, I'm blessed that our family likes to spend time with all of us. Um, and we have, a, you know, all, everybody's doing something different. No one went into accounting. Um, my second, my first wife was a bookkeeper, then got a CPA after I got divorced. And my second wife is also a CPA with a master's degree in taxation. So I guess I like accountants as women. Um, I, co I did co-lead the Ernst & Young uh, Women Retention Program for 10 years uh, with a woman partner. Um, and I'm blessed with a, with, a, with a phenomenal family who uh, everyone loves each other. That's, that's pretty lucky, I think. Yeah, well, I think you've played a big role in creating that luck. And I, I'm very grateful for the support you have um, and continue to have for women in the workplace. So Joel, some thoughts, you know, I think that this seems like a no-brainer. We want to create level playing fields. We want everyone to be able to shine at work. And I really would be interested, you know, financial services is not necessarily known for being such an equal <laughs> playing field. So what are some of the things that you think need to happen uh, how can people be more part of the solution, you know, in creating uh, more equitable uh, work settings? Well, it's, it, there's no simple answer here. It's, it's like, if you look at public accounting right now, about 54% of the starting classes in the big accounting firms are women. Uh, in minorities, it's less than 10%. Uh, in Wall Street, um, the non-investment side today is probably 30% women and the investment side is probably less than 12% today. Um, we don't, and in terms of color, uh, we don't have lots of color in the private equity hedge fund world. Um, and and getting people to come into the world and stay in, in that world is complicated, just like any profession. Uh, and there's normal turnover. So unless we have a bigger class coming in as analysts, portfolio managers, uh, COOs, where we see more women, for example, is in the legal side because there's more women in the legal profession. So the general counsels of private equity and hedge funds we have many more women, um, but on the analyst side, it's, it's, it's a low percentage. And again, it's even a much smaller percentage when you get to color. Um, 
And that's not going to be simple to change in all levels until we get more people coming into the profession so we have more retention. Uh, and not every um, body belongs in those industries just because they start in those industries. Like my youngest son started at hedge funds and now is doing consulting and hated being in Wall Street. Uh, so uh, I, I don't have a, uh, a quick fix. The fix has to be, um, it's going to be evolutionary, not revolutionary. And it's not a pay issue, in my opinion. It's people liking this industry and enjoying this industry. And this industry has its own, like all industries, has pressure and uniqueness. Um, that's not for everybody. Uh, you read about the Goldman bankers and the Morgan Stanley bankers. They don't want to be working 80, 90 hours. The world's evolving. But even when you look at those recruiting classes, the women, the number of women are higher, but it's not nearly 50-50. And until we get a quality of recruiting classes in color and in uh, gender, um, then it's going to take, um, that takes time for that to evolve. Um, you would have thought because Wall Street pays so well, we get more people uh, looking for that, but that hasn't, pay has not been the issue uh, bringing those people in. I just think it's an evolutionary process that's going to take time. Yeah. Yeah. I could see, you know, I think about cultures. I have some um, female friends who are very senior and I, I kind of always say I would never want to, to be there because the general attractiveness of, and the perception of just needing to claw your way through can itself be like, look, I got other things I could do. Why would I go there? You know? And right. I, and I think that that's um, very fair. And I think the, and, the, and Wall Street gets a bad rap. Um, you know, the people are arrogant, they're obnoxious, they're only greedy and they want money. They don't get credit for the charitable work they do or the, um, uh, the things that, uh, that they do to benefit society. Uh, some use their wealth for power, some use their wealth for influence. Uh, and, uh, but many, just like any cut of society, I've worked with all kinds of people out of Harvard and Yale and MIT and Stanford, and I'm from LIU Brooklyn, and yet they take my advice well. Some listen better than others, but that's their personality. Um, Many of them have become friends and others I wouldn't want to walk for a drink with. Uh, but, you know, learning to deal with people of different kinds of people make a difference. But Wall Street people in general are not bad people. They're like all people. Uh, there's good, bad and ugly in every profession and every uh, whether there are people at Walmart at all at all levels of society. Uh, but the rap Wall Street gets, I think, is just inappropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Joel, you know, you, you could do a lot of things. And so I am just curious from the portfolio, which is very broad of what you do do, you know, what's the most fulfilling part? Like, you know, you, you, I know it's not work for you, but when, you know, what do you love most about it? Well, I'm been fortunate, a bunch of things. I realized what mentoring did for me with Mr. Ader and Mintz, the Mintz, who was so influential in my career. Um, and I stayed friends with them till their deaths. And in, in uh, Mr. Mintz's case, his wife is like a grandmother to our family. Um, I mentor lots of people. They go from uh, 
age 72 down to 35. Uh, and I feel I've been a positive impact on helping people in their careers on a personal and a business level and help them manage life and giving back. Uh, you know, I OLIU, uh, the fact that I um, stayed, uh, that I, they kept me in school. I was chancellor there and on the board of trustees of Chancellor of the Brooklyn campus for 20 years and, a, and on the board for 30 years. I'm, I'm a member of four, uh, five charities right now. My wife is on five charity boards. So giving back, you know, as you get older, you have your time allocations are different, especially when you're an empty nester. But I've been involved with charities for the last 40 years, uh, LIU 45 years. So it's a way of helping others. Um, um, you know, I used to be the inspirational speaker at LIU Brooklyn campus for the freshman class, telling them, you know, my crazy story when I had an Afro and, and uh, I was being thrown out of school. So I make everybody laugh. And, uh, you know, LIU, when I went, was a first-generation college, basically Jewish-Italian. Today, it's one of the most diverse. It's 40% Black, 25% uh, uh, Latino, 15% Asian. Um, the only kids who pay full freight are the uh, foreign students, and everyone's on some form of uh, financial assistance. Uh, has one of the highest dropout rates because the kids are not prepared for school. But at the same time, uh, one year when I uh, oversaw, I, as chancellor, you oversee the graduation, we had 100 pregnant women graduating with a college degree. That's an incredible statement. Um, so giving back um, is a big part of what I think is important in life, uh, whether it's time or money. And um, I've been blessed to be able to accomplish that. So wonderful. I can feel the uh, the gratitude and uh, and the folks that you're uh, interacting with are indeed very fortunate. Uh, so let's segue. You know, we have this. It is the Say It Skillfully show, and I know you have. Uh, you are very skillful. I really um, love that about how you move through space. And I know you've had a lot of tough conversations. So perhaps share one with listeners uh, that we can learn from. Well, I don't know. I had lots, lots of tough conversations with lots of clients on complicated business issues or personal issues um, or keeping clients from um, uh, potentially going over the line. And people think if you do little tweaks, if you cross that black line, you know, it's still gray. Uh, so, but I, I think one of my uh, favorite tough conversations um, was one with my mentor, Mr. Ada, I didn't know. Um, the short story is uh, he had me go to a meeting on his behalf that he decided he couldn't make uh, with 12 people. I'm 26 years old. Another partner was supposed to go, but when he heard that Mr. Ada wasn't going, he decided he couldn't carry this meeting. He didn't go. So he let me go to this meeting alone. At this meeting, Mr. Ader, while I'm conducting this meeting in Connecticut uh, with 11 people in the room, doing the job that Mr. Ader should be doing, who's a managing partner of the firm, I get a call from Mr. Ader, who's 
got a problem with another one of my clients and he's literally screaming at me. And I go, Art, his name is Arthur Rader. I go, I can't talk right now. I'm in your meeting. He says, no, no, I need to, you to answer this. I go, no, Art, I'm, I'm, you, I'm in this meeting, 11 people here. No, no, you stay on the phone. And I go, Art, I'm going to hang up the phone. He says, you don't hang up the phone. I hung up the phone. Probably not the brightest move I've ever made. I don't think anything of it. I conduct the meeting. The meeting goes pretty well, I think. I get home that night. I walk into the house at 11.30 at night. And this is first marriage. My wife's hysterical on the couch. I walk in and I immediately think someone died. And I go, what's going on? What's happened? What did you do? I go, what, what do you mean, what did I do? Mr. Ada called, you're fired. I go, excuse me? He calls, you're fired. Come in, seven o'clock. Pick up your stuff. You're out. Obviously, I didn't sleep that night. I get to the office at six o'clock. I'm sitting in Mr. Ada's office. He walks in exactly at seven. He was a very punctual man. And Mr. Ada was short. He was short and rotund. Um, and he had the scariest face you could imagine. He walks in, doesn't take his jacket off or his hat, throws his gloves at me. And he says, I won't use this language, who the F do you think you are? Nobody hangs up on you. Now, a normal person would have not answered what I answered. I answered, I stand up and I go, who the F do you think you are? You send me to your meeting. Your partner doesn't show up with me. You're yelling at me. I got 11 people in the room. I'm taking care of your problems. And you're yelling at me on another problem? What's wrong with you? He looks at me. He says, you ever hang up on me again? You're really fired. I walk out of the office. I went straight to the bathroom. I couldn't get out of the bathroom for a half hour. <laughs> so that shows you, you know, I got lucky because I shouldn't have answered him that way. And I shouldn't have been that disrespectful, but I was too stupid not to because I answered from my heart. And he always said to me, I don't know why I ever liked you. You're the most difficult person I've ever worked with. But I love that man and he loved me until he passed away. So I would say that was my toughest conversation. But to fire me through my wife, that takes a lot of you know what. I, I'm just, I mean, just believe it's fabulous. It's, 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 of course it's fabulous because you are fabulous, Joel. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for sharing that. Okay. As we re, uh, wrap up here, um, a few things. So given that you are exactly where you are, you know, is there anything you, if you do it over again, you know, do it over, but it's something that you would do differently. No, I don't believe in that. As I said, I don't go back on decisions. That's why I said my divorce was the greatest tragedy, but the best thing that ever happened to me. No, I have right. no, I don't believe in regrets or you learn from your experiences and you move forward. You don't look backwards. I wouldn't change anything. Could I have left public accounting and gone to, you know, clients and potentially been wealthier? Would I have been happier? I don't know. Would I have been wealthier? Maybe. I don't believe in any of that. I, I took a road. I couldn't be happier with the road. I had plenty of bumps in the road. Uh, life is full of that. But I, I don't believe in regrets or rethinking anything. So no, I can't answer it that way. Perfect. Biggest compliment you've received, Joel? I received a number of them. You know, 
count and consultants don't get compliments, but um, more than, you know, leave out personal side, but from a business point of view, clients have said to me they couldn't be where they are today if it wasn't for what I did for them. And that to me means a great deal. It means I did what I do and I did it well. Uh, and, um, and I can tell you on more than one occasion, clients have given me more than the fee I asked for. And that's a compliment. That's a huge compliment. Um, you think of the grandchild you have, and what do you um, wish for your grandchild? Uh, he's eight-year-old, beautiful, wonderful, innocent, phenomenal kid. Uh, whatever he finds, it'll make him happy, will make me happy, and uh, he'll find his own road. Uh, as all of us do, and that's going to make me really happy. And I know whatever his success will be, if he's happy, that's success. It's fabulous. Uh, and lastly, the um, I think about this is you've reflected a lot. You've had 50 years, five decades. Uh, and so um, some some top takeaways, maybe one for the listeners, a top takeaway, and maybe one of your own in, in listening to you recount your own story? Most important is be honest, believe in yourself, trust your judgments. That's key to life and have integrity. Never lie, even when it's easy to lie. Yeah, I love it. And uh, my friend, you know, you've shared a lot. And I'm just wondering, what was it like for you to share your journey today? Um, it very enjoyable and I appreciate the opportunity. It's not something I do often, but I've shared more about this um, in, the, in the last 20 years because of working with, you know, I share this story in different ways with children who I counsel and um, in some of the charities that I deal with. Um, so I've shared this story before differently than this, but uh, I recognize that if you open up about your own frailties, people recognize we all have them and learn to adjust to live with them. Thank you, Joel, for sharing uh, so openly, you know, and for all the support and influence you've had on so many. You bring humor and heart to uh, your hard work. And I am really inspired by your passion um, in advocating for how we can really ensure that young people all learn and can reach their full potential. You know, your own youthful energy is just awesome. So uh, I appreciate you for being part of the solution. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, if I can be helpful in any way, you let me know. Joel, I'm always best. cheering for you. You take good care. Be well. Thank you. <laughs> ciao, ciao. Ah. Beyond wonderful. My thought for the week, courtesy of Joel, don't give up on people. There is good in everyone. Find it. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Joel's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, 
and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 